Let's begin this evening by going to the Lord in prayer. God, we just continue to echo the words of that song. You are indescribable. God, we can begin to describe that you are holy, that you are good, that you are loving, that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you are all-knowing, that you are all-powerful. But God, our minds cannot fully wrap themselves around the greatness of who you are. And God, we just thank you for who you are and we give praise to you for who you are. God, I thank you that we have this time now to be able to turn to your word. God, I confess that I have nothing of myself to bring tonight. But God, we thank you that you have provided us with your word. True, inerrant, infallible. That we have your word that we can read, that we can know, that we can study. And God, we thank you for your spirit that you have sent to open our eyes to who you are and to illumine us to the truth of your word. God, and I ask that you will do that tonight. God, that you will illumine your word to us. That we may see it, that we may understand it, that we may encounter you through your word and that we may be different for having encountered you in your word. God, may your spirit move among us. For God, I know that my words have no power. But God, your word. Your word has power because it came from you. Lord, we thank you. I ask you to speak to us this evening. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, about 12 or 13 years ago when I first started preaching, I had this problem where I, uh, I couldn't put together a sermon that was long enough to really fill the time slot that I was given when I got opportunities to preach. Uh, and so I try to come up with stories and try to fill the time. Uh, and evidently, I, uh, I don't have that problem anymore, uh, or so I continue to be told, uh, that uh, last time when I preached about two weeks ago, uh, I got through point number one. And uh, I decided I would cut it short at point one, number one rather than going till about 12.30 to get through the second point because I figured that a lynch mob would be waiting for me if I kept going that long. But uh, tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to continue with point two uh, of the sermon that we, uh, that we started with a couple weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we started asking ourselves this question. Do we believe what this book says? And I explained as we talked about that, I'm not asking this question in the sense of, do we believe that the Bible is true? We established that, yes, we believe that God's word is true, and as Grace Baptist Church, we stand on that truth, that God's word is true. So we're not asking the question, do we believe, are there errors in it or not? That's not the question that we're asking. But the question that we're asking is that we so believe God's word is true that we live it out. Do we believe what this book says? And we ask this question because some of the things that Jesus commands, some of the things that we find here in this book are nothing short of radical. The radical commands that Jesus Christ gives, the radical things that Paul says. There's so many things that are in here that just we read and blow us away by how 
commanding and demanding they are. Jesus said things like, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father. Luke 14, 26, Jesus goes on to say in that passage, you cannot be my disciple unless you give up all your possessions. Luke 14, 33, these are radical things that Jesus says, that if you're going to be my follower, these are things that you need to keep in mind. This is the cost that you need to count if you're going to follow after me. And so last week, we began by specifically asking this question and asking, do we believe what this book says about being the church, about being the body? And so what we looked at was we looked at the early church and how they lived together and the love that they showed for one another. We saw these amazing things in Scripture of how the early church was getting together constantly, and when they were together, if there was a need in the body, they sold their possessions to meet the need of that body. We saw this amazing, radical kind of love, radical kind of view toward possessions that we uh, saw there in that passage. And we looked and talked about that and said, do we believe what this book says about how we should love one another? That was the question that we asked ourselves. And we really kind of got a little bit more specific by thinking about possessions and what Jesus said by such things as a, a rich, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we began to talk and think about how stuff captures our heart and how easy it is for the things in our life, our homes, our, our possessions, our money, whatever it might be, for easy it is for those things to capture our hearts and to have our love and our desire and our joy. And we talked about how God's desire is to burn away our love for those things and to have our love placed on him and him alone. As his command says, to love him above all things. And so we asked ourselves, do we believe what this book says about that kind of love for one another? Well, tonight what we want to do is we want to continue asking ourselves this question. Do we believe what this book says? We want to continue with last week's sermon by asking, do we believe what this book says about missions and about the gospel? But before we dive into that, I think that it's important for me and you to remember where we've come from. I think it's important for us to look back in our lives and to remember what has happened in our lives and where we have come from, spiritually speaking. I look back at my life prior to Christ and look at Scripture, and what I see is that I was dead in my transgressions. I was dead in my trespasses and sin, and Scripture tells me that my heart was darker and blacker and more full of sin than I can really possibly understand. I was truly dead in my trespasses and, and sins, and I was turned away from God, and I had no, I was not seeking after Him. I had no hope, according to Scripture. This is what my life was prior to Christ. And this, according to Scripture, is what every single person was like prior to coming to know Him. We were dead. And there's not much a dead man does to seek after God. A dead man does nothing 
Dead man lays there and stinks, and that's what my life was. I was laying there dead in my trespasses and sin. That's what Scripture says. But then the truth of what Scripture says about what God did in my life. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, by grace are you saved through faith. And it goes on to say how he raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places that we might know the riches to come that he will pour out upon us the grace and the glory of knowing the Father and knowing the Son. This is what was done in my life. And thinking back in my life, how I was dead, had no life, had no hope, and how God did this work in my life, I have to remember that my life now is not my own. Galatians 2.20 says that I was crucified with Christ. And that is the picture of what has been happened in my life. That I am dead. I was dead. I was raised to life in Christ. And now, since that happened, I have no right to my own life. Because it's not my own. It was something that was given to me. Life was placed in me. And so now I can say that my life is not my own. I cannot lay claim to it. I cannot lay claim to my job. I cannot lay claim to my money. I cannot lay claim to my house, my possession. They are not my own. This is the attitude of life, of what our, about our lives, that comes with recognizing that we were dead and we've been raised to life in Christ. That my life is not my own. The only thing that my life can be about is the glory of God and his glory being proclaimed throughout the world. That is what my life must be about because it cannot be about me. Because it's not my life. It's not my own. So I think it's important for us to think about that to remember that truth as we begin to think about some of these other things that we're going to be talking about in Scripture tonight, that our life is not our own. So the question we're asking tonight, do we believe what this book says about the lost? Do we believe what this book says about missions? Again, last time when I was preaching about this and we were talking about do we believe what this book says I, I looked at you and I said I don't have a whole lot of answers to give you I don't have a whole lot of answers to be able to say specifically this is what it looks like in your life to be obedient to this command to love one another uh, as we saw in the New Testament and so tonight I'm going to say the same thing I don't have a whole lot of answers to give you in order to say this is exactly what it looks like in your life to obey the command that you're going to, to love and reach out to the lost and be, obey the commands regarding missions in Scripture. I think one of the things that we need to do when we come to these kind of things in Scripture, one of the things that we're supposed to is to simply go before God as husbands and wives, as families, and begin to think about and talk about what's it going to look like in our family to be obedient to this. What's it going to look like for us as a couple, or us as a family, to really take seriously the commands that we see regarding this topic in Scripture? And so that's one thing that I will encourage you to do as we work through this. To go home and wrestle with these things as a family, husband and wife. Your children are older, wrestle with these things. What's it going to look like in our family to be obedient to what Scripture says? Let's think about that. And so tonight, 
what I want us to do is I want us to wrestle through and begin to think through some of these scriptures that we've obviously heard many times before and think about, do we believe what these scriptures say and what's it going to look like in our lives to take these scriptures seriously day after day after day. So we're going to look at what we believe about the loss, about missions, and we're going to look at several different passages. If you want to try and turn to them very quickly, if you're great at Bible drills, you can try doing that. Uh, I'm going to rattle off several scriptures that you might want to write down. We have heard these many times before. You're familiar with them. You know what these words say. But I want you to listen and to hear and think about the truths that we're reading right here. Romans 2.5, Paul writes that there is a day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, that there is coming a day when his wrath will be revealed in a judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9 continues this idea that the coming of the Lord, it says there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. There is coming that day when this when will happen, when his wrath will be revealed in flaming fire. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That they all will stand before them and he will say, either go to my right or to my left, or depart from me, you accursed ones, into the fire that's prepared for you. Revelation 20.15, John writes, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And describing that place, Matthew 25.30 in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And probably the image that has stuck out to me the most is this that comes up next. And what John writes in Revelation 14, 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. There is coming a day of judgment. And John says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. These are hard words. These are some hard, hard words that we see clearly laid out in God's Word, describing eternal, constant punishment of those who are separated from God forever. One thing that I need to realize and that you need to realize is that these words describe the future of every single person on this planet who has ever lived, will, is living now, or will ever live, who does not know Christ. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. And that will be the neighbors that I have who do not know Christ. That will be your fellow classmates who do not know Christ if they die without knowing him, our co-workers, our friends, the family members I have who do not know Christ, that will be their eternity that they're 
The smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever if they do not know him. These are hard words of Scripture. Do we believe that this is what awaits every unbeliever when they die? I don't say these things to get some emotional rise out of you or me, although I think that it's appropriate for us to have some kind of emotional response when we're thinking about the eternity of people who go to hell forever. But the reason I read these and I speak of these things is because I think that it is so easy for us to mentally believe this, but to really be just caught up so caught up in our day-to-day lives that in practice we really don't express that we believe this. Looking at my own life, I, I can see that it is so easy for me to be consumed with just the day-to-day stuff that I have going on and to pass by the people I pass by day after day and the family members I have and the friends that I have and going on and on down the list, and to never, ever think about the fact that these are eternal people that I am passing by moment by moment. There's one writer who said that we never pass by a mere mortal. We pass by always immortal people, immortal souls that will live forever one place or another. And as we're thinking about this, one thing that is striking my mind and that I have been thinking about and wrestling with is the fact that this describes the majority of our world. People who keep track of these statistics, right now there are about 6.8 billion people on the planet. Uh, Among those, it's claimed that there are 2 2 billion people on the planet who claim the name of Christ. That includes uh, all groups who proclaim to be Christians. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, evangelicals, uh, the liberals in America who would say that there's no need for Jesus even to be saved. Uh, it would include all the whole gamut. So even if you took all that whole two billion people, then there would be still about almost five billion people left in the world who would not claim the name of Christ. Among those five billion about three and a half billion have very little opportunity to hear the gospel. And then within that group, there are a billion people on the planet today who have never heard the name of Jesus. A billion people. Estimates range that there are anywhere from 12,000 to 16,000 people groups uh, on the planet, that different distinct cultures And among those, 6,000, almost half of the people groups on the planet are unreached people groups with the gospel. Those are staggering, staggering statistics. Even in our own state here, there are estimates that this blew me away. Some of the counties in eastern Kentucky are 90 to 95% unchurched. Unbelievable. In our state, in our world, billions of people, it says, are going to hell. So this is the state of the world in which we live. 
this is the, the state of my family members and my neighbors and whatever else uh, it might be. I, I would say coworkers, but that doesn't really apply in my case, I, I don't think. Um, but, uh, but it might in yours uh, and your fellow classmates. Do we believe those truths in Scripture, what it says? Now we're going to take a look at what Scripture says our responsibility is. And you know these passages, but go ahead and turn to them. Matthew 28, 18. Put your finger there. Do your next Bible drill and go to Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 8. This is what we did a lot the last time I preached. We turned to several different passages. We'll just focus on these two uh, right now for a few moments. Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission. You know this, Acts 1, 8. Another passage that you know. When we're looking at these passages, these are the kind of the last commands that were given by Jesus before he uh, ascended into heaven. These are the last commands that really that we have recorded. They were given to his disciples. But as we read these today, we recognize that these commands weren't just for them, but the commands kind of extend to us today because the task of the gospel going out to all the world, to all the nations, has not been completed yet. And so we're going to read these. So listen, hear what God's word says. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. Going through verse 20. All authority, Jesus speaking, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts 1.8. Turn over there real quickly as we read this one. Jesus speaking again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So these are kind of the last two commands that we have by Jesus. What I want us to do is I want us to take a few moments to look a little bit more in depth at what these commands say and what they might mean. So turn back to Matthew 28, the Great Commission as we know it. In this, as you look at it, read through that again quickly. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, and here's the great commission part. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, in the Greek, there is basically one central command that's given in this passage. It's make disciples. That is the command that is given to Jesus' followers, to the disciples then and now to us as well. We are to make disciples. Now, the picture of that process is a believer going out, sharing the gospel with somebody else, or a group of believers going out, sharing the gospel, that person coming to know Christ, and then the believers taking that person, teaching that person, showing that person how to grow in Christ, and then that person who became a Christian, then in turn, go and share the gospel and disciple somebody else. It's this process. That's the picture of disciple-making that we see going on here and in the New Testament, this kind of process. Now, just the fact of this itself is difficult enough. Going out, seeing someone come to know Christ, and then that person teaching that person until that person grows in maturity and goes out and does the same thing himself or herself. That's a daunting task in itself. How many of us can actually say that we have done that? That we have gone through that process. We've seen somebody come to Christ. We have discipled that person. And then that person is going out and now discipling other people. That's a serious task and call just in itself. But perhaps even harder than that is what comes right before it. Or maybe at least harder for us in, in our situation. 
Specifically, what it says there is, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And I think a lot of times that's where the difficulty comes for, in for a lot of us, is that idea of going. In the Greek, this is a special construction that, um, where, the, where the word here um, gets its idea from another verb in, in the, uh, the sentence there, and, and it carries the idea of, of a necessary imperative. You have to go. It's go make disciples. Not if you're really thinking hard about it, not if you really have a, a strong desire to, but if you're my followers, if you're my children, you must go make disciples. And so the question comes up, where are we to go if we're his disciples? And so the answer is found there. Where do we go to all the nations? The goal is that all the nations of the world will become disciples. And this is the promise, actually, that we see in Revelation, that there is coming a day where the people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be joined around the throne of God, proclaiming the goodness and greatness of God forever. And that is the hope that we have. But here is the command that we must obey in order for that hope one day be fulfilled as God's people go out and they go and they make disciples. So let's flip back over to Acts 1.8. Jesus is getting ready to ascend. He's speaking to his disciples and he says what we just read, that you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even in the remotest, remotest part of the earth. I want you to notice, what tense is that in? Those of you all who remember when you studied tenses back in uh, grade school. Future, exactly. It's in the future tense. And so Jesus is saying here, you are going to do this. When we think of future tense, we think of something, hey, it's going to happen sometime in the future. It's prediction of, hey, this will happen. It's saying this is going to, you know, an X number of days is going to happen. But a lot of times in the Greek, it's not just saying a prediction of, hey, this is what is going to happen. But it carries with it an idea of a command, hey, this is what's going to happen because you're going to go do it. Now, some of y'all who have parents have used this with your kids. You don't, haven't just said, hey, it's a prediction that you're going to clean your room. You say, uh, let me tell you, you are going to clean your room. Uh, my parents use that occasionally, but you, for the most part, I was too scared of my mom to, uh, to disobey when she said to you know, clean your room. But you've used that before. And so this is kind of the idea that goes along with it. It's uh, not just predicting what's going to happen, but also carrying a command that you are going to go be my disciples. You're going to do it. I command you to go be my disciples and go do this. Not if you feel like it. Not if it works with your schedule. You must go. And so these were the commands that were given to Jesus' followers. Go and tell. Go and make disciples. And so let's look and see and think about throughout the New Testament, what did we see happening? What did the disciples do? Paul and these other disciples, they went and they told. Now before we go any further in this, I want us to stop and I want us to go back and try to stand in their shoes as much as possible. Jesus has just been killed. He's been killed, he's been crucified, he has been risen from the dead, and now he gives this command, hey, you are going to go make disciples, make followers of me as you go throughout the world. Now when the disciples heard this, 
This wouldn't have been some simple, easy command they heard. When they heard this, they would know the danger that this command entailed. Jesus had just been murdered. He had just been killed. The Jews hated him. And Jesus was saying, hey, go out and tell other people about me. And all the while, these Jews who hated Jesus are going to be hating the people who go along after him and say, hey, look, this was the Messiah. So they know that they're going to be hated by them. Not to mention the Roman authorities and how the Roman authorities thought that uh, these followers of Jesus were a cult. We look back in the first century and all these Roman writings say, well, they're, these are a total cult. They knew that that was awaiting them. Then not even to, to think about just the practical dangers of traveling during that time. You remember the parable of, of the Good Samaritan. You know what happened? That there was a, a man going along the road. He was uh, beaten by robbers and left for dead. Now, there's a reason why Jesus told that and why it rung so true and why people could recognize that. It's because it happened. It was a danger to anybody who was traveling that there would be thieves on the road, and if they went on the road, it's possible that they could get attacked and left for dead. And so just the fact of going down the road could be a dangerous thing for them during that time. Think about Paul. He was shipwrecked. All these different things that came along with the dangers of following after Christ. And what do we see happening with these disciples, with Paul, with these men? They went. They went to the nations. They told. They stood for the truth. Even in the midst of all that. Why? Why did they go? Why did they take such serious risks to their life? Possibly, probably to their families' lives. Why would they do this? I think it's because they really believed what Jesus said. Because they really believed that when Jesus said, none of you can be my disciples, not give up all his own possessions, they thought, well, that may be true. If I'm going to follow Jesus, it may cost me that. When Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. They looked and saw, saw their lives and recognized, hey, I need to have that kind of love for God that it will stand above everything else, even to the nth degree of that. They believed when Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They believed that might be the cost of following him. They believed that when Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. It seems they believed that was true. You know, to us, the lives of these early Christians, they look absolutely radical. They look like people who have, who have almost lost their minds, just giving up everything they have and just following after Christ and forgetting about the danger, forgetting about their own comfort, forgetting about their own pleasure, and just living their Christ for whatever their lives for whatever Christ demanded. And it looks radical because it absolutely is. And I wonder if today, and this is an indictment on me, and it's been thinking about this has been killing me over the past few weeks. Do I have this kind of sense of radical? follow God no matter what, lay down my life, whatever it costs, kind of following that we see of these early Christians. Do I believe that it may cost me that to be a follower of Christ? J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, which I recommend if you haven't read it, 
he writes this, and I've read this book before, but this stood out to me when somebody pointed it out over the past week. J.I. Packer says, we are unlike the Christians of New Testament times. Our approach to life is conventional and static. Theirs was not. The thought of safety first was not a drag on their enterprise as it is on ours. By being exuberant, unconventional, and uninhibited in living by the gospel, they turned their world upside down. And this is what convicts me. But you could not accuse us 21st century Christians of doing anything like that. Gosh. I look at my life and I wonder, would anybody accuse me of having the kind of love, devotion, lay it all down kind of willingness of these early followers of Christ. And that convicts me because they were urgent about following the gospel and following the commands of Christ. We see Paul laying it all down for the sake of following after Christ. And I think about my life and I think about what is it I am urgent about. And we should ask ourselves, what is it we're urgent about? What is it that consumes our desire and our hunger? Is it our jobs or our houses or the people in the Chancay River Valley in Peru or gospel in the nations or worship? What, what, what is it that consumes us? Jesus says, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, teaching them. To observe all I commanded you. I don't know what it's going to look like in your life for you to obey these commands. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like in my life to be obedient to God's command to go and make disciples. And I, like I said before, I think we're told, not told specifically what this is for a reason, so that we'll go before God and wrestle with these things and go before him and seek his will. God, what do you want in my life? How can I be obedient to you as you command me to go and make disciples? To get together your families and talk about these things. Because Jesus doesn't say how long we're to go or how far away to go. He just says, go make disciples. And as we're thinking about this, it's, you know, it's obvious that not everybody can physically go. Not everybody has the physical capability of going to Peru. And so perhaps if that's you, maybe it's that your way of being obedient is, to this is that you are praying for those who are going. You're praying that God will send more workers out into the field. Or maybe it's that you are able to give and send somebody out in the field. I know people who are dying to go, but they don't know exactly how the finances are going to come together. So maybe if that's you, then you need to be involved in that way. Your going is by sending. And I don't believe as we look at this command that every Christian has to be a full-time overseas missionary. Obviously, that's not the case, but obviously it's the call to some. To go be full-time. So I ask you the question, how will you answer the command to go and make disciples? How will you be obedient to that? What is your honest, immediate thought to going uh, to going to Peru, to Africa, to some Islamic country? What would your response be if God says, go to that place? Jesus tells us that it may cost us everything to follow him. It may cost us our possessions. It may cost us our lives. It may cost us our comfort. It may cost us something even as small as staying in a hotel that we wouldn't really like in Peru. 
may cost everything. When someone came to follow him, Jesus said, the foxes have holes and birds of the air have, have nests, but some man has nowhere to lay his head. Are we willing to have that kind of attitude and go if God so does lead us to go and leave everything here? Now this is something that I wrestle with all the time. Jen and I talk about and we and we ask ourselves, it, it comes up every week, every month, whatever. How can we stay here when there are billions who do not know? Not that we don't love Somerset, not that we don't love you all. I, you know, I, I get tears in my eyes just about when I think about you all and my love for you. But we, we wrestle through this. What's it going to look for, like for us to be obedient to the command to go and make disciples? And we've thought about and talked about, well, what, if, what if we, uh, at the time when God so, so leads in our lives, we're, we're, we're retired or whatever, what if we go and just retire to the mission field and die on the field? Wouldn't that be great? And we talk about that and think about some of these different things. And so my, my challenge to you and the thing I ask you tonight is what's it going to look like for you to be obedient to the command to go and make disciples? Again, maybe you can't physically go. Will you support someone? My challenge to many of you in here is to, to go to Peru. You know, there's going to be a lot of different possibilities and a lot of different ways that you can serve. Would you give up the comfort of your bed for the sake of the gospel in Peru? Would we be willing to even do something as simple as that? Some of you may be a, a difficulty financially. For the sake of the gospel, going to Peru, would you do something like give up cable and give up eating out for a year? You know, we think of that as a sacrifice, but we look at the early Christians, that would have been nothing. Would we do something like that? Some of you I would challenge to even think about what, what would you do when you retire? Would you consider the possibility of going on the mission field? Being involved with the North American Mission Board? If God so leads in your life that you feel called to permanent overseas mission work, would you answer that call? I don't know what it's going to look like for us to be obedient to that call. I don't know exactly what God is going to work for me and Jen to be obedient to that call. We're dying to go to Peru soon. And so I know that'll be a first step. Will we wrestle with these things as families? As Sunday school class is talking about these. How will we be obedient? Let's pray.